union with Christ. Out of all of the components of salvation that we are studying, probably this one is one of the more complex. In fact, in the previous weeks and months, I have been asked several times about this doctrine in particular. What does it mean that we are in Jesus Christ, if we indeed are? We are a son or daughter of God, if we are one of God's children, if we have been regenerated, we are in Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, this doctrine is indeed one of the most profound and vital teachings of Scripture. One theologian, John Murray, puts it this way, nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with Christ. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, end quote. MacArthur and Mayhew, in their textbook on biblical doctrine, write this, one of the most precious truths in all Scripture is the doctrine of the believer's union with the Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. Another writer writing quite some time ago, James Stewart, in a book called A Man in Christ, stated it this way. He he said, and he's particularly reflecting on the Apostle Paul's contribution to this doctrine, he says this, quote, Union with Christ, rather than justification or election or eschatology, or indeed any of the other great apostolic themes, is the real clue to an understanding of Paul's thought and experience, end quote. And Charles Spurgeon said it this way, quote, There is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are, end quote. This is a very important doctrine. It's one that has its difficulties, however. It's, a, it's one of these doctrines that expresses association, relation, and so it's often given to misunderstanding, and especially uh, among uh, professing Christians today, you have a lot of people take a very mystical approach to this doctrine. Some will look at the doctrine of union with Christ in such an individualistic way that they'll say that because they're united with Christ, that's all that they need, and therefore they don't need the local church, and they don't need doctrine, they just enjoy this kind of mystical fellowship. And then you have others who will twist this concept of union with Christ and take it to mean a kind of deification, that through union with Christ, we actually are dissolved into the divine essence, and we ourselves become deity. There's some who have so twisted this doctrine to teach that. Well, in light of the fact that it's so easy to fall into errors on this doctrine, and in light of the fact that this is such an important doctrine, a central truth of Scripture, it's important that we do our part to study what Scripture actually says about union with Christ. If you're here tonight, you need to to devote time, you need to devote your study, not even just tonight, but beyond, to seeing what God has said about union with Christ. It really is the essence of your life if indeed you are regenerate, if indeed you are in Christ, as Scripture states. So with that said, let's begin tonight by defining what union with Christ means. What is union with Christ? How do we define it? Let me give you first some definitions provided by various theologians on this. Again, MacArthur and Mayhew define union with Christ this way, quote, a basic dimension of the doctrine of salvation by being identified with Christ in his atoning death 
as well as in his resurrection power, believers are credited with his righteousness and share in his holiness, end quote. Another quote by Louis Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology explains it this way. Union with Christ is, quote, that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between, between Christ and his people, in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength, of their blessedness and salvation, end quote. Another theologian, Wayne Grudem, defines union with Christ this way. It is a phrase used to summarize several different relationships between believers and Christ, through which Christians receive every benefit of salvation. These relationships include the fact that we are in Christ, Christ is in us, we are like Christ, and we are with Christ. End quote. The Puritan theologian John Owen described union with Christ this way. Quote, it is the cause of all other graces that we are made partakers of. They are all communicated unto us by virtue of our union with Christ. Hence is our adoption, our justification, our sanctification, our fruitfulness, our perseverance, our resurrection, our glory, end quote. As John Owen says, and as I think we're going to see tonight as we work through this doctrine and see the testimony to it in Scripture, John Owen sees union with Christ as this wellspring from which flows all of these various components of salvation. Now, if you're following along in our order of these components, if you have the little calendar that we made for you, and gave out at the beginning of the year, if you've been following along on our schedule, you might have the idea that I put union with Christ here because it's the next logical step in the ordo salutis. And and I don't want you to think that way. Union with Christ is not just some step, some cause, or some effect in the ordo salutis, in the order of salvation. It's not what union with Christ is. As John Owen stated here, Union with Christ is actually that spring out of which flows all of the graces of regeneration, adoption, justification, sanctification, glorification, and resurrection. It's not just one component among many. As we're going to see tonight, it really is the foundation to them all and makes all of these things possible. Now, what is the basic idea then of of union with Christ? We we need to get the big idea first. And I would say this, that the the big idea here with the doctrine of union with Christ, as as we're going to define it for the rest of this evening, is the idea of association. It's the idea of association. We sang it in one of the songs, one of the hymns that we sang already tonight, uh, His Forever in that first stanza, it talks about us being bound together with these cords that can never be broken. And that is what union with Christ is. God binds us together to Jesus Christ and binds Jesus Christ, his son, to us. That's the the basic idea. Now, there's going to be various expressions of this concept, but union with Christ, even as that name suggests, is that idea of association where we are brought together. Not in the sense that we lose our identity and we become one somehow new kind of creation. No. But we are bound together with Jesus Christ and he is bound together with us so that he becomes for us the source of all blessing and goodness to us. Now, As we look at Scripture and continue to define this, it is helpful to see the various expressions that are used to communicate this idea. There's there's various phrases that are used that really communicate the concept of union with Christ. And the first one to look at 
is in the Apostle Paul. If you're in Paul's letters, I mentioned already that Paul really focuses on union with Christ and it permeates his writing. But we see it especially when the Apostle Paul uses these these prepositional phrases. His most favorite one is the, the prepositional phrase, in Christ. And he will say over and over again that we are in Christ. We are in the sphere of Christ, this spiritual sphere of Christ, this sphere of identity or of association. A little less frequent, he uses the term with Christ, with Christ. It's a slightly different nuance, but again, it emphasizes the concept of spiritual union, that things have happened to us with Christ, and things have happened to Christ with us. And there's that union there. And sometimes he even uses the prepositional phrase, through Christ. Again, to emphasize this spiritual union. But Paul's not the only one to do this. The Apostle John in his writings doesn't use the phrase in Christ like Paul does, but he uses other terms to communicate the same idea. John loves to use the term abiding, the verb to abide. Especially, you know, he quotes Jesus, and we find many of Jesus' statements regarding abiding in John's gospel. Well, that concept of abiding in Christ, abiding in him, is part of this doctrine of union with Christ. And we'll read some of those texts in just a few moments. So there's various phrases, various uh, kinds of, of language usage that communicates this idea so that when we see the, the, or, or think of the doctrine of union with Christ, we have to immediately think of these kinds of phrases, in Christ, with Christ, through Christ, abiding with him, and so on. But we also find various analogies that are used to help explain to us what union with Christ means. And there's four analogies in, in particular that that God uses in his word to explain and describe to us what union with Christ is. Now, as in the case of any analogy, it will break down after a while. An analogy is just that. It's an analogy. You can't press it too far. But the analogies that we find, these four in particular, are really helpful in expressing various elements of what union with Christ is. And and the first one that we'll look at is this. The first analogy is that of a temple and a cornerstone. And this is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, where Paul writes this. So then, you are fellow citizens with the saints. He's referring to the Gentiles here, and he's, he's explaining in this context how Jew and Gentile are one. And, and he says this, so then, you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, now note the next phrase, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So in that context, John uses the analogy of a building, particularly that of the temple. And all of you have seen pictures of, of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and you, you can see the, the, the remains there of what would be Herod's temple, the temple that had been rebuilt during the time of Jesus and the apostles and stood there. And so that was a very familiar picture. And And Paul uses the concept that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, that most important stone that sets all the the building in place for its dimensions. And we are the stones that are placed around that cornerstone. And the emphasis there is that by being a building block in this temple, we not only share a function with other believers, 
we also, because of our connection to Jesus Christ, become a dwelling place for God in a special way. The temple was a dwelling place. Temple was known to be that place where God would manifest his glory in a special way. And so Paul uses that and says, your building blocks in this temple, this place where God manifests his glory through his special dwelling. That's one of the analogies that's used. Another one is the analogy of the vine and its branches. The vine and its branches. Here we can quote the words of Jesus in the upper room in John 15 verses 4 to 5, where we read this, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now, here again was a very familiar analogy, especially to the disciples, those whom Jesus addresses there in the upper room. They were all familiar with with the the growing of of grapes and the the vine and its, its branches. And the purpose of this analogy is to emphasize dependency. A branch coming off the vine cannot survive on its own. It is dependent upon the stem. It is dependent upon the trunk to provide it with that life-giving sap. And by virtue of its connection to that trunk, to that vine, it has life that can then go on and produce fruitfulness. And therefore, Jesus says, like a branch abides in the vine, so you must abide in me. You, You must recognize, you must realize this union with me Apart from me, you can do nothing. If the branch is cut off, it dies. And that's the idea of union with Christ. Our spiritual life draws from Christ. And if we are separate from Christ, there is no life. There is no fruitfulness. There is no ability to even produce that which is good. And so this analogy emphasizes dependency and fruitfulness. A third analogy is found In Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 23, where Paul discusses the roles of a husband and wife in marriage. And on the one hand, he's very practical about the role of the husband in leading and protecting and providing and sanctifying his wife. And the wife's responsibility in that context is to submit to her husband, respect him. And he uses that as they picture of Christ's association with his church, with his people. He is the husband, and his church, believers, are the bride, his bride. And that analogy that we find there is the analogy of that personal intimacy, that connection. The analogy of covenant faithfulness, of an unbreakable bond, and of exclusivity that no one can intrude upon or, or take the place of the husband or, or the wife. And the same thing is true in our union with Christ. That union provides a kind of exclusivity. We cannot be conjoined with Christ and at the same time joined and unified with the world. No, there is an exclusivity with that spiritual relationship. There is a covenant faithfulness as as Christ is now faithful to us because we have been joined to him and there is that covenant keeping that he commits himself to. And there is then this intimacy, this spiritual communion that is shared between Christ and his people. Then there's a fourth analogy and that is the analogy of a body and its head, Christ being the head, and the body being members of the church, believers. And again, this serves as an analogy to explain or help us understand the doctrine of union with Christ. Christ is the head. From the head comes all of those, as we know, all of the orders to the rest of the body. The head provides the body with 
what it needs. All those electrical impulses. All those instructions for the organs and and the different appendages to do what they need to do. All the muscles and so on and so forth. The head is the control center. And the rest of the body has its own particular functions. Each member of the body, each part of the body has its own uniqueness. And, and, and it is all joined together. The head is not separate from the body. It's joined together in this, this inseparable union. And, and it is only, it's, it's fatal if there is any separation of the head from the body. We know that. And that's the picture that is found, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, where we read that God put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Look at Romans chapter 12, verses 4 to 5, or 1 Corinthians chapter 12, particularly verses 12 to 27, and, and see this analogy used most frequently to describe and illustrate union with Christ. He is the head. He is the control center. And we are the members of his body. These are just some of the ways in which we have described for us this doctrine of union with Christ. And it is so important that when we look at these, this language and these illustrations, we see this, that in Christ, believers are said to be chosen. In Christ, believers are said to be called. They're said to be made alive and recreated. They're said to be crucified and buried. They're said to be baptized into Christ's death. In Christ, they are united with Christ's resurrection. In Christ, they are seated in the heavenly places. In Christ, they are justified, adopted, and sanctified. And in Christ, believers are glorified and resurrected. All of these things come out of a, a, an association, a special, spiritual, vital, life-giving association with Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at some essential characteristics. Having defined it in a, in a general sense, seeing that it, is, it communicates the idea of association, connectedness, being bound together, I want to look at seven characteristics that will help explain this further. Number one, union with Christ is rooted in, in the eternal decree of God. Union with Christ is rooted in the eternal decree of God. God's plan all along was to save us, to save his people, to save his elect by binding us together with his son. That has been his plan from the very, very beginning. That he would bring us redemption and make for himself a special people by binding them together, associating them with his son. So notice what we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul breaks out in this doxology and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ. And then he says this, just as he, that is God the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So before you and I ever existed, before even the, the continents of this planet were laid and the planet was placed in its solar system and and so on and so forth, before any of that ever even occurred, in eternity past, it was God's intention to redeem His elect by joining them to His Son. We see the same idea in 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, where Paul says that, 
God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works. But according to his own purpose and grace. Which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. He's speaking of eternity past. Notice the language again. He is saying that it was God's purpose. It was God's grace to save us. And, and that was granted to us. Notice what it says. Granted to us from all eternity. In Christ. So in eternity past, God had his design that he was going to pour his grace out on undeserving sinners. Those whom he would choose to save from their own sin and its consequences. And he would do so in Christ. So in eternity past, this is already how he looks on his elect. He sees them according to his determination according to his foreordination, as connected to Jesus. All the way from eternity past. And this determination to bind the elect to his son, and his son to the elect, then becomes the wellspring for all the other graces for redemption. So, he makes it his plan He chooses us. He makes it his plan to bind us together with Christ. And then as a result of that plan come all the other components and aspects and steps and stages of this wonderful plan of redemption. One writer, Anthony Hokema, said it this way. Union between Christ and his people was planned already in eternity past in the sovereign pre-temporal decision whereby God the Father selected us as his own. Christ was chosen to be our Savior before the foundation of the world, 1 Peter 1 verse 20. God decreed that Christ would have a people who belonged to him from eternity to eternity. The chosen to be saved, in other words, were never contemplated by the Father apart from Christ or apart from the work Christ was to do for them. They were chosen in Christ. So as God determines to save His elect, right from eternity past, if we can think of it in that way, and our minds have a hard time trying to conceive of that, but we could say this, that determination always had as part of it His intent to bind us to His Son and His Son to us. As a result, as John Murray says, quote, we may never think of the work of redemption wrought once for all by Christ apart from the union with His people which was effected in the election of the Father before the foundation of the world. God's plan of redemption always had Christ as the center. And it was always as part of God's plan of redemption to bind the elect, the saved, to His Son. Union with Christ is rooted in the decree of God. Second, union is established by the atonement of Christ. When we look at the the testimony to this doctrine of union with Christ, we also find it especially connected to Christ's work on the cross. His work in time, at a specific point in time, and this becomes the basis for union. Christ serves, and this is very important to understand this, as we think of the the basis for this union, Christ serves as our representative head. Remember, we are associated with him, and he is associated with us. You could think of it in this way, and in terms of a a representative head from the government. When the secretary of state goes to a foreign country, he doesn't just represent himself. In fact, his job is not to represent himself. The secretary of state is to represent the state. He is to represent the country. And, and Christ is, for us, 
that representative head. And in his atonement, he represented the elect. And the elect are found in him. And so whatever is done by Christ and whatever is done to Christ by God the Father is done to Christ, is done by Christ on our behalf because we are in Christ. Christ is our representative head. Now, this is found, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It should be actually 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22, where we come across this idea that we, we studied for, for a brief amount of time at the very beginning of our series. We talked about Adam being a representative head for the human race. And we were in Adam in that he represented us. But we see now a second Adam. Paul brings this out in 1 Corinthians 15, particularly in verse 21 and 22, and he says this, For since by a man came death, that's Adam, Adam represented the human race, and he made decisions and did actions then that had consequences on all who would be in Adam. And you are all in Adam, we're in Adam, and so all of the consequences that Adam brought upon himself automatically were transferred to you and to every other member of the human race. But notice the second Adam here. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so anyone who comes from Adam, anyone that Adam represented, all die, so also, notice the phrase, in Christ. In other words, all who are in Christ, all who have him as their representative, all who are in Christ will be made alive. And that text helps us understand that at the atonement, all who were bound by God the Father to Jesus Christ and all that all those to whom God the Father bound Jesus Christ, they were in him there at the cross and through his resurrection. Let me read some more texts. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. But by his doing, by God's doing, you, speaking of the saints, you are in Christ Jesus. You are associated with him bound together with him, and therefore he became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Because of what he did on the cross and because of our association to him, he became to us as that representative head, he became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's speaking of the atonement. That's cross language there. That's substitutionary. That is vicarious atonement. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not apart from him, but in him. With him as our representative. Having been bound to him so that as God punishes the sin in, on, on Christ, puts our sin on Christ, we are representatives, or, or he is our representative. We are beneficiaries then of the payment for that sin. And then as he is raised from the dead, the justification of life, because of our association with him, we too rise in spiritual life. Galatians 2 verse 20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul sees his life as associated with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it is no longer I who live, he continues, but Christ lives in me. Here is that reverse association. Now it is Christ living in Paul. And the life which I now live in the flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 to 6. We have bec- if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. MacArthur and Mayhew state this, in summary, though we had not yet been born, God nevertheless counted his people to be in union with their Savior throughout the accomplishment of his redemptive work. Christ did not live die, and rise again for a faceless, nameless group. Redemption was remarkably personal as the body was always reckoned to be united to the head. In other words, uh, Jesus Christ on the cross was not just dying for potential people, potential followers. Actual people were spiritually identified with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. And that is the elect, those whom God would choose to save. Sinclair Ferguson states it this way, If we are united to Christ, then we are united to him at all points of his activity on our behalf. We share in his death. We were baptized into his death. In his resurrection. We were resurrected with Christ. In his ascension, we have been raised with him. In his heavenly session, we sit with him in the heavenly places. So our life is hidden with Christ in God. And we will share in his promised return. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. We are associated to him because he is our head. And whatever God does in and through him, applies also to us. Number three, union is realized through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. This is actual union. This is the, the, the actualization of that union that was planned by God the Father in eternity past that was made, that, that, that was Provided a, that was provided a basis in the atonement of Christ, now it becomes actual at the moment of conversion. You see, there was a time in our lives when we were not in Christ. There was a time, as believers, there was a time in our lives when we were not in Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 3 calls that time of life, a time when we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says this, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. Separate. Now, in the eternal purposes of God, we were united with Christ. But in actuality, before regeneration, we were outside of Christ. That's a little difficult for us to get our minds around, but that's what Scripture says. Notice this next text. This is a very interesting text in in the close to uh, the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans. And there's this little phrase that also expresses this as, as he has some greetings here. And he says this, greet Andronicus and Unius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. So he's, he's referring to these members there of the Roman church and he's saying that they were in Christ before he was. Referring to that actuality, not referring to the eternal purposes of God, but to the actual application of that association in our lives, in his life as a believer. 
You see, even though we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, and even though we died with Christ, and we were raised with Christ, and and we were seated with him in the heavenly places, this union was not actual until our regeneration. We, as John Murray says, we do not become actual partakers of Christ until redemption is effectually applied. And it is applied at regeneration. Notice 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, new things have come. If anyone is in Christ, he's that new creature. Speaking of regeneration. Could look at Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 5. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And a little later there in chapter 2, in Ephesians 2, verse 10, we read this For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So union with Christ is realized. It's actualized at the moment of regeneration. When that which has been planned by God and the basis of which has been accomplished by Christ on the cross. Now becomes real in the realest sense in our subjective existence. Let's look at number four. Union with Christ is appropriated in the believer's life by faith. This is something that that we believe and we receive and we live by faith. And there's two important things to remember here. First of all, these privileges, the, the privileges of this union are not enjoyed because this union is seen. No one can point to it here. No one can say, oh, come over here, come look at this. This is the union that we have with Christ. Peter says we do not see him. And so if we do not see Christ, we cannot see the association with our eyes. And so this union and its privileges are believed by faith. By faith. Faith according to the promise of God revealed in his word. It's, it's the offer of the gospel that we can be associated with Christ, that we can enjoy his life in ours. It's an offer of the gospel and it's appropriated by faith. We don't see it, we don't hold it in our hands, but the scripture teaches it and so we must believe it. And listen, there will be many times in your life will you, where, where you will wonder about this union. Does it exist? I can't touch it. I can't feel those bonds. The the rope isn't there. Is that union real? And we come back again and again to the necessity of faith. God says it's real. God says he has bound you to Christ and Christ to you. You must believe that by faith. Secondly, The privileges of this union are not enjoyed because of the worthiness of the believer's good works. You are united to Christ and Christ to you not because you look good and you do good. You're not united because you're somehow more, you're you're better than others. You're more religious. You give more. You pray more. You read your Bible more. No, this is a union And these are privileges that are received by faith according to the grace of God. That union exists not because you've merited it. Not because you've done something to deserve it. To the contrary, you don't deserve it. And you will live the rest of your life in that reality. There's nothing that you can do ever to deserve that union, that association, whereby God looks at you and Christ together Again, it is by faith, not by works. Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is I who no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It says a similar idea in 
Ephesians 3, verses 15 to 17. One writer says this, We can only grasp and continue to enjoy this union by faith. Faith means living daily in the joyful awareness that Christ lives in us. You're not going to start hearing voices in the middle of the night. You're not going to have these out-of-body experiences and all that kind of stuff that the mystics in the church want to talk about. It's something that God says to you exists and you take it according to faith and live in that joyful awareness. At the same time, This doctrine of this spiritual union, correctly understood, says Voss, is the best means of protection against salvation by works. You enjoy the privileges and the blessings and the life of Jesus Christ, not because of any merit on your behalf. It is simply because God has bound you to him. Number five, union is evidenced in the pursuit of Christ-likeness. This is very important. Union is evidenced in the pursuit of Christ-likeness. It is this doctrine of union which provides the impetus, energy, and ambition for what we call sanctification. It is this union with Christ which imparts to us the desire and the ambition to, to, to live in a way that increasingly reflects the virtues and the holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Listen, sanctification is not just going down a series of boxes to say, okay, don't do this, do this. Don't do this, do this. Sanctification is conformity to the likeness of Christ. Now think about this. Romans 8 verse 29 says, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. Now, what is the best way to be conformed to him? It is to be associated with him. It is to live in that union with him. And as we live in that union with him, we are conformed more and more to who he is. Again, we see this in John 15, verse 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. Your conformity to Jesus Christ can never happen apart from the vine. If you are outside of Christ, you can never be conformed to Christ. It is only by virtue of being in Christ where you have that life-giving sap to begin producing those Christ-like fruits. You could look at Romans 6. We won't look at the whole chapter, but notice verse 4. We have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Paul here connects our burial with Christ and our resurrection with Christ with the implication that we will now walk like Christ walks because we're bound to him. Look at verses 11 and 13 of Romans 6. He says, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And immediately you have a, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. So on and, and so forth. I like what Stuart says when he says this. Paul would have said that a Christian is a man who strives. Every day he lives to make more and more real and actual and visible and convincing that which he is ideally and potentially by his union with Christ Jesus. His relationship to Christ constrains him. It is a fact, but it is also a duty. It is a present reality, but it is also a beckoning idea. Are you in Christ, says Paul to the believer? Then be a man in Christ indeed. That's so important. When you conceive of your life and, how, and the direction it should be going, you cannot look at it apart from this doctrine of union with Christ. And if you are a believer, remember you've been bound to him. And remember that the next time that temptation comes, comes your way, you're bound to Christ. How can you participate in that sin? 
And when you have the opportunity to instead express virtue, remember, you're bound to him. And so this virtue will now come naturally. The sap will flow through you and you'll produce the fruit because you have been bound with Christ, with that inseparable bond. It's essential to the doctrine of sanctification. Number six, union is experienced in the fellowship of the saints. I won't spend much time here, but the problem that we have today is that, as I've mentioned already, so many think that their personal relationship with Jesus Christ means that they can live as an island, isolated from all other believers with no responsibilities to the local church whatsoever. I just have my own Christian life in my home. Even here of churches that give out little packages of communion, of all things, of these little cups of, of grape juice and wafers, and they say, go and you can take this at home if you don't want to come back next Sunday. Silly stuff like that. The doctrine of union with Christ cannot be conceived of apart from the corporate union that we share now with one another. Romans 12 verse 5. We who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Galatians 3 verse 28, John 17, 20 to 21 speaks of Jesus' prayer that they would all be one. The reality of it is, if you're in Christ, the man sitting next to you, if he's in Christ, that means you're in one body. Whether you like it or not, you might as well just love him. He's part of you. He's part of you. MacArthur and Mayhew say this, there is no union with Christ that does not issue in fellowship with his church. In other words, if you have no place for the body of Christ, the local church, it demonstrates that you have woefully misunderstood the doctrine of union with Christ. If the church is is not a priority in your life and it's just something that you do when you have the time, you have misunderstood union with Christ. Union with Christ, being bound together with him, means you are bound just as tightly with all those others who are also bound together with him. Love the church. Finally, union, number seven, union is culminated in the realms of glory. Union with Christ is culminated in the realms of glory. This union, brothers, is insoluble. It will not dissolve. It can never fail. It will bring us to future glory because we are bound to Christ and those bonds are unbreakable. We go where he is. Colossians 1 verse 27, to whom, that is to the saints, God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The one who is in you and the one in whom you are, Christ, he's called the hope of glory. And this is not just some kind of flimsy optimism. This is a guaranteed promise. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22 says that as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, all who are in Christ will be made alive, speaking of the future resurrection. So note this, if you are in Christ today, and if you die in Christ, you know this, you will also be raised in Christ. That is a promise. All who are in Christ will be raised in Christ. Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. In other words, more of you is there than here. Think of that. The, 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 the most of your life is not here right now. It is hidden with Christ on high. And that life will be given to you when Christ returns for you. And you will experience that glorification. This is 
a bond that cannot be broken. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8, 37 to 39, that in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus, where you're at. It'll never be broken. That bond will stand firm. John Murray said, apart from union with Christ, we cannot view past, present, or future with anything but dismay and Christless dread. By union with Christ, the whole complexion of time and eternity is changed, and the people of God may rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. He goes on to say, there is no truth, therefore, more suited to impart confidence and strength comfort and joy in the Lord than this one of union with Christ. Where is your assurance of salvation, men? It is in that bond that associates you with Christ. There is your assurance. There's a hymn we don't sing very It's a forgotten hymn, but it has beautiful words written by John Kent called Hail Sacred Union. Hail Sacred Union. He was an English Calvinist Baptist hymn writer. These are the words to to the hymn. Between Jesus and the chosen race subsists a bond of sovereign grace. That hell with its infernal doom shall never dissolve or rend in two. The sacred bond shall never break, though earth should to her center shake. Rest, doubting saint, assured of this, for God has pledged his holiness. He swore but once the deed was done. T'was settled by the great three in one. Christ was appointed to redeem all that the Father loved in him. Hail, sacred union, firm and strong. How great the grace, how sweet the song, that rebel worms should ever be one with incarnate deity. One in the tomb, one when he rose, one when he triumphed over his foes, one when in heaven he took his seat while seraphs sung at hell's defeat. The sacred tie forbids their fears, For all he is or has is theirs. With him their head, they stand or fall, their life, their surety, and their all. That's union with Christ. Association. Unbreakable bonds. And if you're in Christ, that's your status. That's your identity. And that should motivate you for the highest praise, for the deepest love, for what our great God has done for us. If you're not in Christ, we pray that you fall into that category of those who are just not yet in Christ. Some of us have preceded you. And the exhortation to you, which is what the Apostle Paul himself would have preached, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the offer of the gospel. Receive the reconciliation. That is yours and can be yours in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful truth. And we know we've just touched the surface. This is so profound that we will spend the rest of our lives exploring and admiring this wonderful union. It is a sacred bond. And we give you all the glory for your plan that chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then through the atonement of Christ, we receive the righteousness of God, of you in him. That we were raised to newness of life, even there at the cross. And that that was applied to us in time. 
in our lives. And now by faith, we, we live this life knowing that we have been inseparably connected to your Son, Jesus Christ. We are in Him. He is in us. And what a great promise that is to us. What a great gift of grace. We pray for those among us who do not know this yet, that their souls would pine for this association. And that you would, through your Holy Spirit, raise them up to newness of life and make this association actual for them. We ask this so that your name would be greatly glorified. In Christ's name we pray.